Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Welcome, everyone, to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder, Lori LeBay, and I hope you're all having a fabulous day. Spring is here. I know in Minnesota we still have snow on the ground, but it's starting to warm up and melt finally. Um, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company, for those of you that aren't familiar with us, that just provides uh, multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world, we're all about raising the voice of of everyone to find out what are they doing that's working and um, being able to share that information and that knowledge and that camaraderie so that we can truly work together to improve lives for those dealing with dementia because this is not just a disease of one. This truly is a disease of society. And um, we're just thrilled that you joined us here today. If you like the show, I would encourage you to go ahead and share it and tweet it and put it on your Facebook because all the episodes are archived and so people can access these any time of the day um, when they've got time. So go ahead and, and scroll through those. It's through your advocacy, through those small little moments of sharing and tweeting and talking about Alzheimer's Speaks and what we're doing, that we were um, recognized as the number one influencer on the Internet for Alzheimer's by Share Care and Dr. Oz. So, again, I really want to thank you for that because from the bottom of my heart, this is all about removing the stigmas and and the stagnation um, and the isolation that comes with dementia. I truly believe that when we work collaboratively, We can change the world, and I think we are already. So thank you so much. Um, This is not an easy journey. Uh, You can ask anyone who's on it. I've been on it myself with my mom for over 30 years now. Uh, For some, it's a quick journey. For others, it's long, and it's hard, just like it has been uh, for myself and my family. I'm not sure if our channel expert, Rick Phelps, um, who has early onset, will be able to join us or not. Rick is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, um, but it's a great uh, closed group where people can find a place for support and uh, share what's going on in their lives. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and um, I think roll into our program today because it's it's very exciting. Uh, we have just got some fabulous, fabulous people doing some wonderful, uh, wonderful things, um, changing our dementia care culture around the world. And um, before I go in and introduce Gary, I do want to just also thank uh, Alzheimer's Disease International. 
um, who is uh, partnering with Alzheimer's Speaks in terms of shifting our dementia care culture and um, trying to spread the word of how to be dementia friendly, how to how to change those perspectives in the world. They're doing some some awfully fine things as well. So Gary Glazner is the founder and executive director of Alzheimer's Poetry Project, um, which is just, many of you have probably heard about it, and if not, um, you will today, and I know you're going to want to check into it a little deeper because it's absolutely uh, just a wonderful, wonderful project. The National um, Endowment for the Arts listed the APP, or the Alzheimer's Poetry Project, as uh, a best practice for their arts and aging initiatives. Um, NBC and the Today Show and NPR, um, all things considered, um, and The Voice of America have featured segments of Gary's work. Um, it's just absolutely fascinating what he what he has been able to do. And to date, he has been in 23 states, and internationally he's been in Germany, in Poland, in South Korea, and has served over 15,000 people living with dementia. This is not a small project, and it's not a small vision. And I'm so glad that Gary is with us today as one of those big thinkers the Alzheimer's Poetry Project was also awarded in 2012 um, from the MetLife Foundation Creativity and Aging in America Leadership Award, which is really pretty cool because it's all about engaging community. So welcome, Gary. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Lori. It's really, really exciting to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, and you're, you're kind of like the little Pied Piper, and so we've got um, we've got several people with Gary um, who are expanding on his project and um, and just expanding this work of creativity and engagement. So I think that that's exciting, and we will get to all of those people in in uh, in just a minute. Um, but Gary, first of all, can you tell people, you know? I, with poetry, a lot of people think it's just one of those things that you sit down and you do by yourself, that it's very solitary kind of art. Um, and it's not its not easily understood, I think, or appreciated by everybody um, because of its creativity. How do, you, how do you feel about poetry? Do you look at it in that light? Or? Well, the first thing is I have to say thanks for giving me a new title, The Pied Piper of Poetry. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Lori. Uh, so I started this work in 1997 in Northern California, and I had gotten a grant at an, uh, for to work in an adult daycare center. And there was no instruction just on somehow to use poetry with the people. And so I hit on the idea of using classic poems that they might have learned as children. And the moment of inspiration for me and the story I love to share with people is there was a man in the group and his head was down. He wasn't participating at all. And I would say he was completely unaware of his surroundings. And I said the Longfellow poem. I shot an arrow in the air and his eyes popped open and he said, it fell to earth, I know not where. And so suddenly he was able to participate with us. And that was just a really heartfelt moment for me as a poet. And 
to answer the question directly, what we do is a participatory art. So we perform poems with people, and then we create poems. And so we don't really take the tact of, you know, the analysis of the poem, although we will talk about the meanings, but our main thing, our main entryway in is to say the poems and how fun it is to say the poems together. So, for instance, uh, a poem that gets a tremendous amount of response is Trees by Joyce Kilmer that starts off with, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And so we'll do this using a technique called call and response. So would you like to try it, Lori? Sure. Okay. And, and the other artists, we have uh, Michelle Otero, uh, Zoe Bird, uh, Rachel Moritz are also uh, on the line as well. Uh, we'll all say the line of poetry. You repeat after me. Everybody ready? Okay, wait a second. I have to get them um, unmuted, so just a second. Okay, okay. we're cooking with oil now. All right, ready. Here's, here's, here we go. Ready? And, and we're gonna use uh we're gonna use a poem by Edward Lear, just the end of it, called The Owl and the Pussycat. Hand in hand. Hand in hand. hand. On the edge of the sand. On the edge of the sand. We danced by the light of the moon. We danced by the light of the moon. The moon. The moon, the moon. The moon, the moon, the moon. The moon, the moon, the moon, the moon. We danced by the light of the moon. We danced by the light of the moon. Now, we might couple that with holding the person's hand while we say the poem and actually doing a kind of little hand dance. And so that's a way... It takes poetry out of the sort of ivory tower that you were mentioning, Lori, and kind of brings it into the room and lets people play with it and lets it be fun and it's interactive and you're you're just repeating the line, so you're using a, a type of memory called the coic memory that's really powerful for people living with cognitive impairment. So I wanted to just share one quick story about that poem. Um, last December, I was contacted by a writer by the name of Abby Fruit. She lives in Wisconsin, and I had met her. And her mom is a resident of Sierra Vista Assisted Living Center in, in Santa Fe, where both Zoe and, and Michelle have done programming in the past. And so um, Abby wrote me, and she said, um, my mom is at the place with her dementia where she doesn't recognize my voice on the phone. And so she said, can you suggest anything? And I said, well, why don't you write your mom a poem, you know, and we'll take the poem and we'll read the poem to her when we do one of the sessions. So Abby had had this experience with her mom, and I'll just read you the, the poem. It's very short, but here's, here's the whole poem she wrote for her mom. She says, dear mom, I remember a song called The Sad Guitar. You sang it to Sylvia and Liz and me when we were little girls. We loved it. You strummed it for us on an air guitar whenever we wanted to hear it. The guitar was sad, but you made us happy. 
Love, Abby. So mm-hmm. we took that poem in, and we and Abby also said, I imagine all the residents strumming air guitars when they hear the poem. And so we brought <laughs> the poem in, and we used uh, we used the Owl and the Pussycat as our as our model poem that has the lovely line, the owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar. So we recited that poem and got everybody performing it. And then we started to strum our air guitars as we heard Abby's poem. And her mom's face just lit up when she heard that, when she heard the poem from Abby. And then we created our own poem by asking questions around the image of the guitar. So here's the poem that the group the group created. A happy guitar with my husband. Everything makes me happy. Anyone makes me happy. The dance makes me happy. The owl and the pussycat having you here. It's nothing immediate. The sound of a mandolin makes me happy. My father played the mandolin. I want to dance some more. When I'm feeling well and I have good people with me, that makes me happy. And that was that last line was Abby's mom's contribution to the poem. So that's one of the ways that we work using it. And in this case, a very special situation where we were able to reach out to somebody and and have them participate by creating a poem. And then we have these wonderful, beautiful photographs of her mom strumming her air guitar. Oh, how fun. <laughs> those messages, you know, in those moments, they're just so precious. And then to be able to capture them in a creative way, um, that is just really fabulous. Um, I, I just can't even imagine how that must make family feel, um, to be able to to see and be part of that and to see that joy um, I, I know what it does to me as a daughter when when I see my mom connect on that level. And you, you can't even put those things into words. I mean, they're just so powerful and so, so dearly precious. Um, what do you think is is really behind, you know, this, this powerful response that you get from people, this, this connection with people? Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think there's a couple of things that's happening. Um, one is that the thing I think we get, or you know, certainly I get the most out of working with people living with dementia, is this Zen idea of living in the moment. And so in that moment where we're creating the poem and we're strumming air guitars and we're holding hands and you know dancing to hand-in-hand, uh, on the edge of the sand, we dance by the light of the moon. At that moment, there's no sort of pressure of like, you know, do you remember this or do you remember that? You're just really uh, experiencing joy. And I think that that's one thing. So you're sort of shifting out of this idea of, you know, a, a typical conversation. Do you remember when we went on this vacation or something like that? And so you're you're using the poems and the rhythm and the rhyme of the poems to reinforce that and it's participatory so the people are having a chance to say it with you and I think that that is part of the strong response the other thing is they're responding to 
the emotional sound of the words and your voice and your facial expressions, your body language, all those kinds of things that we're bringing in as as poets and as performers and artists. So I think that's a lot of what's going on. It's also surprising, right? Who knew you were going to wake up in the morning and be waltzing around to poetry? So that's that's helpful too, that surprise element. Well, I would think that it just, um, you know, these connections, when, when they have them, I mean, there's just this, um, what I see anyways, is just this serenity that just, like, oozes out of them when they're connected. Um, and it's contagious. Um, do you guys see that or feel that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, absolutely. <laughs> I wonder if... Um, Lori, if, if Fabu has joined us, do you can you tell that? Yep, and I I I will let you know. I'm watching for that right now. So um. okay, so so um, Zoe, we're gonna go alphabetically. You are the B, Zoe Bird. Can we? Can I ask you to to just talk a little bit about what it means to you to work with Alzheimer's Poetry Project? Sure, sure. I'm Zoe Bird, and I had the great fortune of meeting the Pied Piper of poetry. Um, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think in 1998 in Santa Fe, um, and he got me involved as a poet in residence in New Mexico, doing sessions, mostly in Santa Fe, but also in Albuquerque and um, in Las Vegas, New Mexico, in a state mental health facility which was a really amazing place to work um, all over the state doing poetry sessions with people. And it's been such a profound experience. I think every time I do a session, um, whether, you know, no matter the, the kind of group or the kind of response, um, there's always, there's always a good deal of response in the first place. It's just, I think every time I do one of these sessions, I end up in happy tears at some point, along mm-hmm. with other people. Um, my grandmother, Vivian, was a painter, and uh, she worked as a secretary in the Glidden factory outside Baltimore uh, for many years and developed lung cancer in her early 60s, never having smoked. She came to live with us when I was about five in Minneapolis, and toward at the very very end of her life even when she couldn't sit up in bed to paint she still would take a brush in her hand and lying there in bed she would paint the air with this wonderful expression of satisfaction and serenity that you mentioned wow. Lori and wow, wow, wow. and so yeah ever since then i think i've i've seen what a joy and a solace art is at every stage of life, and I've certainly seen that uh, doing work with people with Alzheimer's and dementia, and the satisfaction that comes from being able to suddenly recite a poem that you didn't even know you remembered. There was a great lady named Carol at uh, Open Hands in Santa Fe. Would usually She was on oxygen and kind of an introvert, and she would usually sit apart from the group at her own table but almost every poem I recited, she would join in on, and she would recite the whole poem with me. 
and I would note the look on her face as she was doing this. You know, she was she was really, really excited that she had this and she had this to share. I think she surprised herself sometimes. That was a great experience. Um, so Rachel and I have started a branch of the project uh, here in Minnesota, and um, we've been working with wonderful groups at the Wilder Adult Day Health Center in St. Paul, um, various you know groups of various uh, orientation when it comes to you know where they are with dementia and Alzheimer's. And I really noticed too that uh, stimulating as many of the senses as we can in the sessions is important. Um, eye contact is so important. Touch is so important. The sense of smell, if we bring uh, objects in like flowers or fruit or leaves or pine cones for people to smell, that really that really gets people involved as well as the the rhythm and the call and response. And we do sessions outside in the gardens, the beautiful gardens at Wilder, um, whenever the weather cooperates, which, as you know, in Minnesota is not all that often. <laughs> but I wanted to sh- share a short and uh, delightful poem that we made in the garden uh, with Wilder's Sunroom Poets last year. And Sunroom Poets are a wonderful late-stage group um, that I have the privilege of working with. This poem is called In the Garden. I'm talking to someone in another world. Greens and beans, greens and beans. Hello, Miss Green and Bean. Nice to meet you. I don't love to put my fingers in the earth. I just pick oranges, mangoes. (laughs) Wow, that was great. You read that so well, too, Zoe. (laughs) Really Thanks. <laughs> will you, will you tell the tell Lori and the listeners just a little bit of how how you got to create the poem? What what was the technique that you used to create it? Sure. Well, we had you know first of all we all gathered around a table in the garden, and these <clears throat> community gardens that they have at Wilder are just lush and beautiful with flowers and vegetables. So we, you know, we started the session by reciting some poems. We did, um, <clears throat> Do You Care at All for Me? My Heart Beats for You, uh, that that silly vegetable poem, and that got people excited and laughing, and we repeated lines together. So we did some more garden-related poems in that style and really got the call and response going. And then, you know, we started asking people questions about you know, what they like to do in the garden. And everybody in the group pretty much worked in the garden on a regular basis. So they talked about things they like to grow and the way they like to work in the garden, that they like to weed. Or, you know, Susan, who's from Jamaica, said the lines about, uh, I don't like to put my fingers in the earth. I just pick. She liked to reach up. So we played with movement of, you know, working in the earth or reaching up to pick and made this poem together. And then we recited it together a couple of times and got the the energy up a little further with each recitation. So by the end, everybody was sort of shouting, greens and beans, greens and beans. <laughs> oh, how fun, how fun. It was great. To see them come together like that and just be carefree. 
and Mm -hmm. um, really enjoy the moment. I think that's, you know, for me, that's one of the things this disease has taught me is to be more carefree and, and in the moment and to be silly and to have fun and to appreciate those times instead of, you know, worrying and thinking that I'm a serious adult, you know, with tasks to do. Um, and and that's just such a gift to be able to get there. So I, I would think by working with these people, you, you get so much back. I, I just I can't even fathom the joy you guys must get. It's pretty tremendous. Well, very, so very, Rachel, very. Uh, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm doing well, yeah. Happy to be here. And will you will you talk a little bit about yeah. working in the project? And also, um, I think that you guys did something in that garden with putting poems in it or something. What was that about? We did. Last year, um, there was an interest on the staff, uh, the, the part of the staff at Wilder, in getting um, some poems out into the garden. And so we tried a couple different techniques. It was a little bit of trial and error. Um, had some trouble with rain. Tried tried putting, you know, just using chalk on the sidewalk. We ended up um, getting these uh, little kind of yard signs and putting them a short um, haiku-like kind of lines from poems around the garden, and um, and those were really fun. You could kind of take take a walk and see, um, you know, in three or four places um, parts of poems that that people there had written. And so, I think you know the the residents or, or the participants in the um, the day program really enjoyed being able to go outside and see their words. Um, this year, we're um, collaborating with a potter who's also working at Wilder to um, find a way to put poems in the garden in a more permanent um, manner. So I think we're going to be making um, uh, little plaques with um, a design and a line of a poem and then actually putting them up on the wall. So that'll be really fun. I think, uh, oh, that's great. Too. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky enough to um, kind of signed Gary and and Zoe also last year when I got thrown into um a residency at Wilder and realized um that I actually ha- hadn't didn't have a whole lot of experience working with older adults with memory loss and was um anxious to to talk to other people who'd done it and found Gary actually online found his website and contacted him and um he was gracious enough to suggest that I come meet with him um, and Zoe, who he just happened to be in Minneapolis that week. So it sort of felt like this wonderful, um, you know, moment of grace where I got to meet both of them and, and hear a little bit about this project and then um, and learn also um, how to do a better job with the work I was doing. So um, now very um, happy to be continuing to do work with, um, with uh, poets at Wilder and I guess one thing, in addition to what everyone has said here, one thing I've thought a lot about um, in the last year is just thinking about kind of the developmental stages of life that we all go through and thinking about, um, for older adults, the developmental stage really, the the essential work that you're kind of doing at that point in your life is, um, you know, acting as a, a, you know, a, a sage or person with wisdom, being able to tell your stories, um, thinking about what you've been through and what you've experienced and leaving a legacy for your family or thinking about what your legacy is. Um, For people with 
dementia, memory loss, that moment, um, that role kind of gets robbed from you. So um, what I see happening a lot is that poetry is um, the vehicle to get people talking and to get um, memories in whatever form they they may come, um, even if it's just a snippet of something, if it's a, a kind of a fresh image or a fresh memory that's created in the moment, um, it, it gets that that happening again in people's bodies and minds and souls. And so I've really enjoyed being able to be a witness um, to some of the stories that come out in the sessions. And um, I just wanted to share a poem where we were we were using the theme of hands as a way to get at kind of what what have you experienced in your life? What have your hands done for you? Um, and what have you used them for? And we we started by reading a couple poems doing call and response with a wonderful poem by um, a poet named Jane Hirschfield. And we also did some um, sensory um, kind of exploration. I brought brought some things around in a bag for people to feel and identify like, a, you know, furry scarves or a pine cone or a really smooth piece of driftwood and just talked about how things felt um, in your hands. And then... Um, wrote this poem together, so I just wanted to, to share it, um, just to get at this idea of what um, what can be captured in terms of um, what you've experienced in your life. So it's called My Hands. My hands have waved at friends, loved ones, strangers. My hands have knitted a little bit of everything. My hands have cooked ribs for my birthday. My hands have measured transits on the highway. My hands have done none my hands go my hands have raised three teenagers my hands now get to rest my hands have made cups of coffee and scratched my ears once in a while my hands have played guitar accordion harmonica my hands have created artwork my hands have held my kids my hands have sheltered my eyes from the rays of the sun i remember no, I, I love blown away by that last line my ears <laughs> yeah. yeah, really beautiful. Yeah, there's some levity in there, and there's some um, playfulness, and then also I just kind of was stunned by you know it just happened that the very last person who contributed their line came up with my you know my hands have sheltered my eyes from the rays of the sun, um, which oh, is just such gosh. a beautiful poetic image. So that was just you know um, a moment of kind of being able to bask in what what could be created and sort of the the full range of life experiences that we capture just in, you know, 10 minutes of, of talking and writing together. Oh, in 10 minutes? Wow. That's um, that's incredible in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pull something that beautiful and that um, picturesque, picturesque um, that quickly. That's just mm-hmm. really, really neat. Really, really neat. Um Gary, do you want to? Um, I'm looking. Uh, Fabu still is not with us, and um, I just noticed too that I don't have um, an email to shoot to see um, if if they're going to be calling if they're going to be calling in or not. Um, so I just thought I'd FYI you on that. I I don't know if I cut it off or or not, but um, I'll uh, I'll send her one real quick and see what's going on. Okay, sounds sounds good. And then, um, do you want to um, pull the others in, or do you want to? Um, wh- how would you like to 
proceed here? Um, yeah, Michelle, um, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you guys? <laughs> it's been so great to meet you, everyone. This is so fun. I'm I'm loving this so much to hear the the different stories. So Michelle, um, she has kind of a special role in the project in that she does a lot of programming in Spanish and English. And she also um, traveled with me to Seoul, South Korea to do our programming there. Uh, so would you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that and you know uh, uh, some of the Spanish programming you do? Sure. Um, I'll start with the Spanish programming. Um, so I, I grew up in New Mexico, and I found I, I, Gary and Zoe were also my gateway into the project. <laughs> um, I received an email one day in uh, 2009 that had been forwarded by a poet friend that said that um, the Alzheimer's Poetry Project was looking for a Spanish-speaking poet. So I reached out to Zoe, who put me in touch with Gary, and the first uh, workshop that I did was um, you know, accompanying the two of them at a place in Santa Fe called Open Hands. Um, so since then, um, I've been able to incorporate a lot of um, Spanish language programming into into the work that I do. Um, in New Mexico, if you grew up, even if you didn't grow up fully bilingual, if you grew up in a home with somebody who speaks Spanish, um, then those people probably taught you through dichos. And they're just really short kind of Spanish language proverbs um, that are meant to teach you lessons about life. Um, so one of them that I like to use is... Um, Del dicho al hecho hay un gran trecho. Hay un gran trecho, sorry. Um, and it means from the word to the act, there's quite a long path. Um, so they're really great little um, little nuggets of wisdom that a lot of people remember from their childhood. Um, and and they often rhyme, and um, and they're very wise, and, they're, and a lot of them are fun. Another one that we like to use is... Um, Pan es pan, queso es queso, pero no hay amor si no hay besos. And that just means bread is bread, cheese is cheese, but if there's no love, if there's no kiss. Um, and that one's great because, you know, we, mm. people can kiss their hands, and then a lot of times at the end of that we'll throw in the word abrazo, which means to hug. And so there's a lot of um, sensory fun that's packed into that, that's packed into that little dicho. Um when Gary and I went to Korea in October, we worked with a group, um, with a pretty large group of um, poets and mostly artists, but also people who and, and people who work with um, with elders who are um, who are facing kind of memory loss issues. And uh, we spent two very jam-packed days with them, um, and were able to um, kind of we were working with. You know how to do how to do um, call and response um, using some poet a lot of poems that that people had learned as um, children there. Um, so you know it, it was a lot of fun because the folks that we were working with were very shy. And it was really interesting trying to figure out how to use a lot of how to how to translate a lot of our techniques into um, not just the Korean language but also into like the culture of Korea. So we talked a lot about making eye contact or using touch, and they were like, well, we would never, you know, we would never make eye contact with our elders. And, and so the great project, the great thing about this project is that it's very adaptable. You know, we kind of have a set 
of of things of, of tools in our toolkit, and they can be adapted for you know lots of different settings. So it was a lot of fun. Um, I think we almost started a riot when <laughs> Gary suggested that we do one poem Gangnam style. <laughs> Folks didn't take real well to that suggestion. <laughs> but what the conversation led to was a beautiful dance and um, and dramatic interpretation of a of a lovely kind of classic Korean poem. One woman who's a dancer and an actor got up and and as a another actor was reciting the poem she did these lovely dance movements and so we did call and response both with movement and with um you know and with our voices um so i work a lot with um with an organization in albuquerque called uh, baralas share your care um, baralas is a historic neighborhood in albuquerque um it was um, really a lot of folks who moved to Albuquerque from all around New Mexico, from villages, like right after World War II, um, during the railroad boom, moved into the Barales neighborhood. So there are lots of families who have been there for several generations and, um, you know, lots of Spanish-speaking folks. And um, Share Your Care is an adult daycare facility. So I work with them about once a month. And um, um, I just wanted to share a poem that we worked on um a couple of months ago i uh, i took in onions <laughs> i was trying to figure out what can i what can i take that will kind of reconnect us to the earth and get us talking about you know um, cuz you know as Zoe and Rachel both mentioned a lot of folks of this generation grew up growing their own food and gardening um, especially here and um and so it's nice if they can kind of have that just really kind of tactile reconnection with um, with the earth. Um, so I took in a bag of onions and, um, you know, we passed those around and we shared um, Neruda's Ode to the Onion and they thought that was really kind of silly that somebody would write a poem about an onion. Um, <laughs> but we did that too. So we used the onion almost like a talking stick. So I had one and, and as we went around the room, you know, when, when a person would hold the onion, then they would come up with a line of the poem. So this is our, this is our onion poem. Um, onion. This onion feels like a hand. It's a nice onion, as big as a baseball. We grew lots of onions in West Virginia. Lonely little onion in a turnip patch. Está bonita esta cebolla. ¿Quién sabe qué diría? En Guatemoc tienen cebolla y melón. It feels very thin, almost like from a tree. If this onion could talk, it would say... I'm getting so hungry, I'm going to eat myself. It's pretty because it's so round. If this onion could talk, it would say, don't eat me. This onion feels hard. It smells real bad. Onions have a sweet taste. They enhance the flavor of other foods. It's good when it grows. It goes to the children. I was following my children. I don't know what you'd call this onion, but it's round and cold. If this onion could talk, it would say, if you take my outer skin off, I'm going to make you cry. This onion feels like eggplant, smooth, really smooth. I knew the names of all the onions. I forgot. This onion's name is Smelling Good, brings back memories of my mom cooking dinner, chopping onions, a good bowl of onion soup, it smells like vinegar, and they cut it. It makes you cry. Onion heals a cold. Just cut it open, chop it up, put some taro syrup on it, and eat it. Yum. 
Onions probably grow in the ground, but that thing sticking out feels like a leaf. So maybe it's a tree. Very fun. <laughs> there, you guys do such a nice job the, uh, in your... Oh, go ahead, Gary. Go ahead. I was just going to say I love the line about the, uh, if you peel me, I'm going to make you cry. <laughs> yeah, that one was a lot of fun. He always comes up with the best lines. <laughs> well, and you guys do such a nice job in your reading, you know, of an interpretation of the poems too. I mean, it just really brings them to life, which is is you know, so much fun to hear as a listener. Um, you really draw all of you draw us in very nicely. So thank you for sharing that. That's that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Well, Fabu is still not with us, so um, I'm going to just throw a couple of more questions out to you, if that's okay. And um, and if she, call, yeah, if she let's, calls, we'll... Let's mm-hmm. just, uh, just for the listeners to let, let them know who we're talking about, it's uh, Babu Carter is the past poet laureate of Madison, Wisconsin. And um, she's been working on the project for a couple of years and uh, has has really been doing a great job. So hope everything's fine with her. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at her um, website, the City of Madison um, Arts Commission, and um, she's on there, and it looks like doing just some fabulous, fabulous things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that she'll be able to call in. But, you know, um, schedules change and, and things. Yeah, and like, I know, uh, I know she's, uh, she's working today, so. Yeah. So, well, wonderful. Now, um, Gary, you know, you've worked in Germany and Poland and South Korea. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the techniques um, that you feel the Alzheimer's Poetry Project has um, that that you're able to make it work in these other, other languages? And then also, have you known all these languages when you've gone? Um, Do you have somebody with you or... Right, yeah. So I always uh, work with, uh, in in Germany and and Poland, I had uh, really wonderful translators who were um, also performance poets, uh, Lars Rupel and uh, 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 Bogdan Piasecki. And then in South Korea, we had a really great uh, translator who, was very excited because she said most of her translation work was business materials, and so she was really excited to be doing art. And so that's key. Um, and the techniques that we use, I'll give uh, four simple techniques, um, which we've discussed a little bit, but we'll just kind of list them now. So mm-hmm. the first one is the call and response, where you're saying a line of poetry and having the person recite it back to you or the group. Now, you could adapt this easily uh, for one-on-one use in the home. And I know a lot of people that that will be the situation that they might want to try to use it. So this would just be you're simply saying a line of the poem, uh, my love is like a red, red rose, and you have the person reciting back to you. Um, The second technique is to have discussions around the poems. And so... um, Last week, I was in Toledo, Ohio, and I did staff training for the um, uh, Toledo Museum. A lot of museums now have 
programs where they uh, do docent tours for people living with memory loss and their families. And so in that case, um, we got poems that went with some of the artwork, and then we had discussions around the poems and the uh, the artwork. So the number three technique is, as many of uh, Rachel, uh, Zoe, and Michelle have all indicated, to use uh, something that's tactile to, to use a prop. And so in Michelle's case, the lovely example of using the onion, um, using the garden, um, they mentioned, uh, you know, pine cones. We have a lot of luck with doing poems around trees and using bark and leaves and uh, branches, that kind of thing, something that's tactile. There was, um, a, at the beginning of the project, I was working in New Mexico, and I was going to a session, and I couldn't decide what prop to bring. And I was looking all around the house, and I couldn't find anything. And then finally, I looked outside, and I thought, I am going to bring snow. So I filled an <laughs> ice chest full of snow, and I brought the ice chest in, and uh, I made snowballs, and I passed them out. This was at Sierra Vista in Santa Fe. And some of the residents took the snow and started to eat it, immediately started to eat it. And others were, you know, was too cold. They didn't really want to touch it. And then Ruth Dennis, the activities director, said, throw the snowballs at Gary. So there mm -hmm. I was in the middle of the room reciting, miles to go, splat, before I sleep, whack. So <laughs> it, it hit me how powerful the poems could be. Literally. Sorry, sorry, about, sorry about that. Um, so that's the third technique is to use props. And the fourth technique that we use is to um, create poems by asking open-ended questions. And I think all of uh, uh, Rachel, uh, Michelle, and Zoe have given real strong examples of that. Um, I wanted to share one other example. This was in a, um, uh at-home setting. I had done a talk for the Alzheimer's Association in Northern California, and um, one of the women who attended the talk, her husband, was a retired doctor, Dr. Fred London, and he, uh, she asked me, Trudy asked me, she said, would you come by and work uh, with Fred? Uh, he loves poetry, and so I had some time after the conference, and I went by, and they had gotten all of Fred's books out, uh, T.S. Eliot and Ogden Nash and E. Cummings and Shakespeare, and we recited poems together. And then um, we got to the point where we were going to create a poem, and it seemed like he was losing a little bit of interest. And uh, then suddenly he just looked at me. And then this is Northern California, and you can imagine outside of these beautiful rolling hills. And so Fred looked at me, and he said, so this is the poem we created. He said, if I don't write it down, it's shh. Notice the color, this gray-brown, that eats up all the land. When you reach out for it, it sneaks away. And so I said, Fred, do you, can, can I ask you some questions about poetry? And I'll write down the answers and we'll create a poem together. And so I asked him what he thought of when he heard the word poetry, and he said, even though it sounds simple, it isn't simple. It's like Robert Frost playing ball with a wasted arm. And then I asked him what poetry tastes like, and he said, 
a poem tastes sweet and orange-flavored. It grasps the poet by his trousers and squeezes his crotch, stretching to gain more, and he's lovable. When you mention poetry to most people, they panic. Smart people, dumb people, I have no time for that. Poetry smells like famine wolf dog on a mountain, running up the hill, biting the sun. Once you read the poems, you don't want to put it away. Once you get the poem going, you can actually miss tennis. Poetry sounds like howling wind pushing up the shore. So that was a Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. We ended the session, and Saturday morning at 9 a.m., Trudy called me and said that, that Dr. London had passed away. Oh, that just brought tears to my eyes. I'm like tearing up. I mean, that was so powerful. It's so Yeah, and he, he was a really unique guy, and um, uh, his obituary, uh, you know, had these wonderful reflections from his classmates at Yale and uh, people that had worked with him as a doctor in California. But I just thought, um, and, and just to give a little bit, when we when I came, he said, uh, I said, Fred, I'm here. I love poetry. They tell me you love poetry. He says, any other day, but today I have a tennis lesson. <laughs> and so, so they had changed the tennis lesson. But I love that he put in the line, once you get the poem going, you can actually miss tennis. <laughs> Oh. And this first line, some of the context, you know, the sort of uh, subtext of it is so beautiful because, you know, here's a person that's dealing with memory loss, and his first thing he says is, if I don't write it down, it's, shh, notice the color, this gray-brown that eats up all the land. When you reach out for it, it sneaks away. And we were looking outside at the window of the rolling brown hills. But I think that's such a lovely image um, to describe uh, memory loss. Yeah, yeah, very beautiful, very, very beautiful, um, and just shows the power and the insights, um, you know, people have. And just, I love how he just, you know, changed the perspective of what poetry is. And it, man, he was he, he was very, very good at describing it. Um, very, very good. At describing it, um, I almost want to like get a copy of that and frame it. Oh, I'll <laughs> send you a copy. Yeah, and and the other thing that I want the listeners to know is that each time I would ask Fred, uh, you know, what does poetry smell like? He was so he concentrated, his face would scrunch up, you know, and you could just see. And then he would just these words would just come flowing out, you know, so he would scrunch up his face and then say, poetry smells like famine wolf dog on a mountain running up the hill, biting the sun, you know, and it's just like, wow, I could barely write fast enough to keep up with it. Yeah, that's uh, that's very, very, very neat. Now, you um, you do most of your work, I believe, in like assisted living in adult day, day centers, is that correct? Yes, um, that is true, and then occasionally we've had the uh, honor, you know, of uh, be being able to do one-on-one -on -one programming at home, and so, um, you know, we're looking to do more and more of that. Um, another direction is to form partnerships with groups. So, for instance, uh, I'm doing a project uh, this year in uh, 
Wisconsin, in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which is the, of course, the hometown of the Ringling Brothers. So there's a fantastic circus museum there. And we've formed a partnership with the University of Wisconsin at Baraboo to do service learning for the students and with Jack Young Middle School. Now, the listeners are probably thinking, do they call University of Wisconsin at Baraboo, boo you? Yes, it's true. <laughs> so with that one, we're doing, we, we teach the kids to recite the poems, and then we bring them into the facilities, and uh, and then they go back and write about their experiences. And then on um, April 9th, we're going to do... Um, a public event at the University of Wisconsin there and at the library where the students will uh, recite poems and talk about their work and uh, and we'll invite the public to come to that, both the middle school students and the and the college students. Okay. Okay. Well that'll be that'll be fun to get the, the college students involved. I would think that'll be a, a ton of fun. Yeah, yeah. they're great and uh Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in, in Minnesota. Um, so we're, we're kind of excited um, to say that we've gotten our first uh, funding uh, from the Dorsey Foundation, which is uh, coming through from the wonderful um, uh, Jane Tigerson, who, who runs their program at the uh, Minneapolis Institute of Art. So, Zoe and Rachel, talk a little bit about that. Uh, you mentioned some of the things that are coming up, but what what, what else? What's okay, let me get them Minnesota? back on, online here. So, Okay, you're both up and running. Okay. So, Zoe, do you want to go ahead and, and start? Sure, sure. I'll say a little, and then maybe Rachel can elaborate. And um, Well, Jane Tigerson is fabulous. She's uh, She runs... Uh, participatory sessions for people with memory loss who are visiting the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. And so um, she got us uh, connected with the Dorsey Foundation, which has given us our first funding for the Minnesota Alzheimer's Poetry Project. We're going to be working with her doing some trainings for museum staff in how to work with people with memory loss uh, using both visual art and dementia uh, and dementia and poetry, and that's really exciting. Um, and we are expanding programming to uh, some adult day centers in both St. Paul and Minneapolis, mostly in lower-income areas, to bring these sessions there. Um, we really hope to, in the future, involve uh, multi-generational programming, bringing schools and adult day centers and assisted living facilities together um, and also connect with Somali and Spanish and Hmong-speaking poets to work with some of those populations here in the Twin Cities. So it feels like we're, we've got some great momentum here and we're off to a, a wonderful start. Well, that's exciting because you're right in my in my neck of the woods, so you'll have to keep me yeah. posted on all of that. So yeah, definitely. I'd, I would love to actually come and visit and watch you guys in action sometimes. Or oh, um, anytime. That would yeah, be great. That would be that would be really fun. Really yeah. fun to see. We'd, we'd well, love to have you, and we have regular sessions um, at Wilder, 
and we'll be doing some collaborative sessions at Ebenezer uh, with the clay artist there. So, absolutely. Well, that's that's great. Um, anything else you wanted to add in on um, on that, Rachel? Um, you know, one one thing that just a kind of a smaller project we'd like to do, but. Um, when when we're doing residencies, it's nice to be able to capture the work that's created. Um, and so, um, you know, beyond kind of printing out poems every week and handing them out to people. So one of the things we'd really like to do um, at an upcoming residency is to create a really beautiful book of all of the participants' poems that can be, you know, that they can have, that their families can have, that um, the day centers can keep. And so um, Zoe's recently connected with um, some folks at the Homewood Studio in um, uh, North Minneapolis that have letterpress mm -hmm. facilities. And so that's that's another thing we'd, we'd love to be able to do is work with letterpress artists to, to make beautiful poems, uh, make a, you know, a visual product that, um, is as can kind of match the the beauty of the words that come out, and also just give a voice um, beyond you know I mean what what we've all been talking about, and I think the real strength of this work is that it is participatory and it happens in the moment, and that's mm -hmm. I think kind of its primary strength. But but to be able to archive and have this work available for um, for the participants and their families, I think is another really wonderful thing that we'd like to be able to do more of. So. So that's another thing we're thinking about. Yeah, I could even see, you know, for the shorter ones, even greeting cards or mm -hmm. artwork for the wall. Um, like yeah. I said, just framed pieces would be really cool, I think, in uh, especially in different communities, um, just being able to show that creativity um, and yeah. be able to display that and get a conversation going and maybe get more funding, you know, as people yeah. notice it more. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, definitely. It'd be really, really neat. Um, now, I wanted to um, pose to to Gary as well in terms of like there's a lot of memory cafes that we're hearing about, and um, especially in um, well, they're they're all over the UK and they're they're really popping up here in the US. Do you see um, the memory cafe and the Alzheimer's cafe movement? Um, similar to what you're doing or complementary with what you're doing? Well, we've started in Brooklyn uh, what we call the Memory Arts Cafe. And so our model is, uh, is, is similar to the Memory Cafes and the Alzheimer's Cafes, but we put the artist at the center. So each, um, each event has a guest artist, and they... Uh, talk about their art, they perform, and then they create something with the group. And so we're having a big event at uh, Brooklyn Museum on uh, Saturday, May 25th, uh, and our guest artist will be the jazz trumpeter Jesse Newman and the dancers uh, Rhythm Break Cares, who host regular tea dances for people living with dementia. So, and and these these guys are. Uh, fully pierced <laughs> young dancers, and so they're really fun <laughs> to work with, and we're really excited about that. Oh, that's that is really interesting. We would love to. You know, we have a memory cafe in Roseville. Actually, we have two of them them now that go back to back, and it would be so much fun to have something like this, um, you know, with us. But we don't have any funding <laughs> to be able to. 
to be able to pay for it at all. And guess who just came on the line? We're going to go ahead and grab Fabu here quick. So let me pull her in. Hi, Fabu. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? Good. We are just thrilled that you were able to make the conversation. We were just wrapping up here. So I'm going to throw it to Gary. And then, Gary, can you kind of introduce uh, Fabu? And um, we'll go from there. Yeah, are we are we ending at exactly noon, or do we go over a we'll, few minutes? We'll be we'll be okay. We'll be okay. Okay, fantastic. So, so uh, Fabu, how are you? I'm fine. Greetings from Wisconsin. So we've been chatting a bit uh, just about the project uh, and some of the other project artists are on the line. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience and uh, share a poem with us, if you if you would. Well, my experiences have been really wonderful with the elders in Madison, Wisconsin, and how this poetry project has really aided them in memories. Using poetry has been nothing short of wonderful in awakening their childhoods and also in just showing me the power of poetry that lasts your whole life long. So I had an amazing experience. I walked into uh, senior housing, and there was a woman there who was making soup. So the whole place just permeated with the smell of good chicken soup. And so we (laughs) used that experience to compose a poem on how to make good soup. We had representatives from Puerto Rico, from Wisconsin, from Kentucky, and they talked about their childhood and what soup and family meant to them. Um, and they talked about it in um, English and in Spanglish, and that was one of my most powerful memories of how, first of all, you can find famous poets who've written about soup. Then you can find um, seniors, and that's just a great uh, memory, but then just to actually smell the soup and know that they were going to eat the soup later. So one of the last lines that they composed, oh, our good, good soup, soup is melted memories. Wow. What a great line. Very, very neat. It was a great experience. And so I I love that um, you used the sensory, you know, of of smell to be able to develop that, you know. And you guys don't let anything go to waste, (laughs) which which I think is great. And really really see, you know, what is triggering people and and how does that come into play and and how can we utilize that. And, and, um, you know, and I think these are things that people could, could do at home with loved ones as well, I would imagine, um, you just got to loosen up a little bit and um, and go with the flow. Um, not look for perfection, but just um, know that whatever comes out is what's supposed to come out. Um, would not that be a good that. way to approach that? Yeah, Excuse going me? with the flow, but letting memories flow. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. One, well, I'm just I'm thrilled that you were able to uh, to come and join us today. This has been a, a fabulous conversation, and and time has just kind of blown away um, quickly on us here. Uh, but you guys are all doing just great, great work, and I'm just thrilled that we were able to have you on the show to to let us know what you're up to. 
Um, Gary, how do people get a hold of you? Um, you know, if they're interested in bringing the Alzheimer's Poetry Project uh, to their neighborhood or community, um, they can contact me through the website, um, the Alzheimer's Poetry Project website. Uh, if they want to send an email, they can send it to me at uh, Gary at Alzpoetry dot com. So it's G A R Y at A L Z P O E T R Y dot com. Gary at Alzpoetry dot com. Wonderful. And um, if they're interested in reaching out to the others, is it best to go through you then um, to be able to get connected? Yeah, they can they can send a message and we'll we'll pass it on and get everybody connected. And the other thing we always want to offer when we do stuff like this is um, if somebody's sitting at home and they're thinking, "Wow, how do I do this?" Feel free to send an email and I'll help you get started. And um, you know, we've got a book that uh, talks about these techniques. Uh, has a lot of the poems we use. We do uh, online training using Skype. And so there's lots of different ways that we can connect. But as they say, operators are standing by. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like I said, I can't thank you all enough for the time that you spent with us and the, the poems that you shared um, and, and just the creativity in which you all work in the realm. It's, it's so greatly needed, and you're doing powerful, wonderful work out there. So um, thank you all. And um, at this point, I'm going to go ahead and roll into our, our next segment here um, with Angel. And I w will be posting on the blog uh, more information, but in the meantime, on the radio show, there is information um, as to how to get a hold of Gary um, I'm going to go through each one of you and just ask if there's anything else you'd like to add. So, Zoe, anything that you'd like to add before we close? Just thank you so much for having us on, and please, anyone who is listening who wants more information or needs help, feel free to contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Great. Thank you. And, Michelle, how about you? Um, I also just want to say thank you for having us on and for the service you provide through this radio show. And... Um, yeah, and even if you don't have a loved one who's in a facility, all of everything that we do can be done at home. So please, please reach out to us. And if there's any way we can be of service, uh, we'd be happy to do that. Great. And I would imagine they don't people don't have to have memory loss to be able to do what it is you're doing either. So don't limit yourself there. How about you, Rachel? Yeah, this thank you, and this is this really nice. Um, Nice for me to get to hear the voices of folks who are involved in this project because we're all, a lot of us are far away and really nice to, to hear, um, be here and, and talk with you this morning. So thank you. Oh, great. Well, thank you. And Fabu? Well, the Alzheimer's Poetry Project has really been amazing. It's one of the best things that I've ever done. And just to connect with the elders in our community and in our families and who are our friends and loved ones, it's just really an experience that I would offer to anyone to share and to enjoy. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And, Gary, I'll give you one last uh, chance if there's any any last-minute thoughts that you want to share with people. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a little teary-eyed, Lori. 
This has uh, been so fantastic uh, to have this uh, platform to be able to bring the artists together and be able to share our work with your audience. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Oh, not a problem. And we'll, you know, these are all archived, so everybody can go ahead and share them to their heart's content um, because this is good stuff that you're doing and the, the word needs to get out. So you guys all have a wonderful day, and we will definitely stay in touch, okay? Bye now. Bye, everybody. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest here. Um, and uh, this this person is doing just phenomenal work as well. Um, Angel uh, Tarek Ritchie um, is one of the most experienced geriatric professionals in the nation, and we're lucky enough to have her with us today. She's a highly respected elder care expert. She's a best-selling author. She's a registered nurse and a geriatric care manager, along with um, being a speaker and a consultant. And she has been in the world of geriatric care and advocacy for um, 30 years. And her latest um, best-selling book is entitled Behind the Old Face, The Aging in America and the Coming of the Elder Boom. And it's been endorsed by highly respected leaders and organizations and is just receiving excellent reviews from the healthcare professional as well as um, from laypersons uh, like myself. So I, um, I want to welcome you today, um, Angel. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Lori. Well, I'm I'm thrilled to have you, and I'm sorry we ran over a little bit, but we were having we had quite the quite the pack. Um, that was on the first that was session. a very interesting, very interesting conversation, and yeah, they're doing great stuff. That's wonderful. Yeah, it was very 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 fun conversation, and I'm sure our uh, our time will fly by just as fast as as theirs did. Um, can you uh, give people a little bit of background, um, just in terms of, you know, I gave them kind of an overview, but one of the questions that I typically like to ask is, have you been personally touched in your own family or close friends by dementia? Yes. Um, my, my grandmother, she's deceased now. She passed away in 2005, but she had a stroke and a heart attack in one weekend. And uh, she rehabbed pretty well. She she went back to her apartment, and um, about a year later, she started developing dementia, um, vascular dementia. And so, yes, we we had um, you know that going on in our family, and there were some moves and some different things that happened. But um, yeah, it, we were touched by it, and I I really don't know if there's anybody that's not touched anymore that doesn't know somebody, you know that that needs care or is caring for someone. Um, you know, my mom and my my aunt took the bulk of the the work caring for my grandma initially and had her go back and forth, but then um, it was better suited for my grandmother to be in a facility because she's a very social person. So um, I would take her for weekends, like uh, long holiday weekends or a weekend in the summer, and we would visit and things. But, um, yeah, we were touched by it as well. Yeah, it's a interesting disease, needless to say, and a, a very interesting journey. Um, well, thanks for that that uh, preface and background there. Um, you know, I know that you've got this this huge passion for elder care and advocacy. And can you tell us, you know, where'd that come from? How'd you get involved with all of that? 
uh, well, when I was 17, I started working in a nursing home. Um, and I describe this in my book, but I, I really just wanted a job and um, really wasn't too interested in caring for people. <laughs> but um, when I got there, it was a whole different story. And then um, I enjoyed the job. I really liked it, and I thought I did pretty good. And I had one patient that, um, in particular that couldn't speak or do anything for herself. She never had a visitor, a phone call, um, Christmas card, anything. And I took care of her well, I thought. I kept her clean and dry and fed, and um, but I didn't engage with her. At 17, I didn't know how to how to interact with somebody that didn't communicate back. And there was no training back in those days for nurses' aides. We just kind of went to work. So mm-hmm. um, one night when we were assigned to clean the cabinets and drawers, I worked afternoon shift. I found a box of love letters in her cabinet. It was probably no less than 30 letters from her husband. Amazing love letters. Um, and I just sat on the floor and cried. I, I would look up at her as I was reading these letters, and she she became somebody. Um you know, she had a life. She had somebody that adored her. She really wasn't, you know, somebody that uh, was just left in a nursing home. Her husband passed away, and there she was. And so everything changed for me. I decided, um, you know, I felt like I had to care for her for him because there was nobody left to care for her. So I would periodically read her the letters and everything. It, it changed to emotional care for me. It wasn't just physical care anymore. And I really think, you know, I it didn't really dawn on me that that was such a significant moment that uh, really began my passion for caring for seniors and advocating for uh, better care and treatment. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, until the last few years, it, it, you know, I've thought about it over the years, but it really didn't hit me that that's where it all started until I started writing. Wow. Now, this this process of writing, where did that come from? Um, I I never intended to be a writer or an author and still don't feel like I, I, that's my career. I'm a nurse that loves old people. Um, I got sick. I'm chronically sick with Sjogren's syndrome and chronic fatigue, which changed my life significantly. Um, I can't, I'm not, I can't do the physical work I did. So um, I tried to, I figured out how I could continue the work I love within the restraints of a sick body and thought I could share the same information I share with families and seniors and, and health care workers um, in nursing homes, hospitals, assisted livings, and private homes through the Internet. I could do that from a laptop in bed. So I just started writing a blog, and things went a little crazy, and I started getting offers to write for other websites, and and four years later, here I am. I've written probably 70 articles now, and um, I have two books out, and the latest is, you mentioned behind the old face, um, which which is doing very well. And um, I, it's not because I'm a writer; it's because I have a passion for caring for seniors, and I, I have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you? Did you find the process challenging at first to to sit down with pen and paper and go, okay, this is I'm gonna I'm gonna write an article, and then did the articles turn into books or? Well, I feel like God put the book on my heart in the middle of a funeral in 2004. Um, so that's specifically about the book, and, and I, I discuss all these things and, and the experience of the nursing home in the book. But um, 
for me, writing is just easy. I, I don't know why um, I can just sit down and I, it, I have to contain myself when people give me a word count. You know, they only want 750 words. It's hard for me to reduce the words. To, so I don't really have a problem writing. It's just, I just, what I feel in my heart and in my mind, I put on paper. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think that passion just flows. I know sometimes when I write, it's, it just, kind of oozes out of me and I don't even I mean I just almost feel like it's channeled to me <laughs> yeah I've, I've surprised myself sometimes I'm kind of imp- once in a while I get impressed with my own writing I'm just like where did that come from you know mm-hmm. some idea comes and it's you know I believe it's from God but um, you know it comes and uh, yeah I, I sometimes am shocked by my own writing mm-hmm. yeah it's well and it's such a um you know, I really encourage people to write because it can be so healing, um, not only for yourself, but if you decide to share it for others. Um, because we, we have a lot more information than we think we do. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. Um, and a lot of times that inner critic kind of beats us up and, uh, you know, tells us, you know, we don't know that much. But we all are, are gathering life lessons constantly. And, you know, those life lessons can be shared those insights, you know, can help others, you know, look and perceive the world maybe a little bit differently than than what they did um, before, which I think is a very, very important facet of of the process as a whole. There. Right. Now, um, you have basically cared and advocated for seniors pretty much your your entire life um, in a variety of settings, and. Um, I'm just wondering if you can tell us what changes you've seen, you know, since even like um, the mid-70s. Because, I, I mean, that's kind of where I've been in, um, you know, with the whole dementia world with my mom um, and caring for her and, and looking for resources. And, and I've seen some significant changes. But I'm I'm wondering, what have you seen? Well, when I started in elder care, there was... We, there, the only option was a nursing home. You were at home or you were in a nursing home, and there wasn't anything else. There wasn't assisted living. There wasn't home care, um, you know, maybe some underground stuff going on, but it really wasn't anything to speak of. So we we do have a lot of options now. I don't know that the care is any better. I think it's in many ways it's worse um, because elder abuse is up. You know, it just... Um, um, I think there's more options, but I don't think that the care has really improved. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wrote an ar- article recently on my website that um, one of the the gentlemen that's in my book that we cared for, um, I'm still in contact with his son, and he lives out in Washington State, and he wrote, he sent me an article from 1974 that he had sent his mother who was caring for um, his dad at the time, or her, or her mother. He was I can't recall exactly who she was caring for, but the article could have been written today. It's the same thing that was going on in 1974, the same lack of understanding, the same lack of empathy. Um, And I've seen those patients that were described in this article over and over and over again throughout the years. So, you know, as, as much as things have changed and progressed with options, I think we haven't done much better with care. Mhm. Yeah, I think there's a whole um shift that needs to happen in terms of our 
our care culture, um, not just dementia care culture, but just our care culture, period. I, I think we have gotten so out of whack and so busy. We don't even know the impact we have on one another, and decisions are made quickly under deadlines and timelines, and I think creativity um, is lost um, because people are, are still trying to work within the box, and and our, our box is broken. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because I, I um, help I facilitate an elder care support group at my church on Monday nights. We had this discussion last night about bingo in nursing homes. Like, you know, when are they going to get rid of bingo? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to play bingo, and half the people that are in there now don't, but it's one of the only things they offer. So when you talk about creativity, you're right. They, we, need, we need to do so much more than we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, well, in like, you know, the project that just, the, uh, the uh, Alzheimer's Poetry Project, I mean, it's fun and it's exciting. I was uh, talking with uh, even an architect uh, yesterday over in the Netherlands, and he was talking about, I believe they're called snoozle rooms. And it was fascinating. I'm like, what's a snoozle room? And they're a sensory room where people can enter. And so it might be like a disco room where lights are flashing and which would not be good for someone with dementia. Right. <laughs> Overstimulation and, and the ball going and things. But there was one where it was um, a, a beach. And so the floor was sand. The chairs were lounge chairs. There were umbrellas on the table. Um, you could hear the ocean. That's um, where I want to be. And there were pictures, and the lights were heated, so it was warm. Uh, there was another one where they actually created the entry of a nursing home. They made it like you were on a train. So there were, like, two chairs, you know, like you were sitting next to somebody on a train um, throughout this corridor, and then they had windows, that, and there was basically, you know, a movie of like you were moving in a train. And wow. while they were sitting in the foyer, um, they would, you know, be served tea or coffee, and they could just sit and relax. And I just saw, and there was the the subtle noise, you know, of the train moving, and I just thought, what a cool concept is that. Yeah, really, yeah. There's some people doing some really great stuff out there, and it's just a matter of us finding out about it. You know, who's yeah. doing what? Let's gather together and put our minds together and our resources and our experience and, you know, our ideas, and re- and let's do this together. Yeah, well, and that's one of the goals we have here, you know, with Alzheimer's Speaks. It's really about raising the voice of everyone around the world because there's so much happening that we don't know about. And it's it's doing us all such a disservice not to share ideas. And, um, you know, we, especially I think in the U.S., you know, we tend to think every concept has to be our own. We have to have our own brand, you know, put on it. And um, we we don't share resources. And we, we spend ridiculous amounts of money trying to recreate so we have this ownership that really it's not going to matter if it's ours or not when it comes to certain services because if we share information, it allows us to create new and better things all the time. And, I agree. You know, I totally agree and the end, And the end user um, then has so much more available. And it's like, 
you know, how do people not get this concept? And because they're so wrapped into, you know, the money. You know, we got to make we got to make the money. We got to make the money. Um, you know, and the only way we can do that is through ownership. Well, that that isn't true. There is money to be made, you know, and um, and money to be saved through collaboration. Exactly. There's a lot of money to be saved that could be used, utilized to make a more creative and positive aging future. We have to create our aging future, and we have to act now because, you know, our system cannot support the aging baby boomers, of which I'm one. You know, for Mm -hmm. the next 17 years, 10,000 a day are turning 65. And, you know, a semi-private nursing home bed in um, the United States right now is 85000 a year, average. Mm-hmm. In 20 years, it's going to be over 210000 a year. And I expect that that's about the time I might, myself or my husband might need care. We're getting close to it. Mm-hmm. That, that would be like a half a million dollars for us a, a year to live in a nursing home that we don't even want to live in. Yep. And, you know, we've got to do something. We have to act now. We can't just ignore it and wish it would go away because it's not going to go away. And we really are in need of some urgency here to start making things happen and creating our aging future. We can't rely on the government. I mean, they were never meant to rely on for our, our you know, to support us and care for us when we were old anyway. But, you know, it's we have to do something different. It's time. Mm-hmm. It is time. And I, I think... You know, the way I look at it is I think there has to be um, a coming together between the government and between public businesses um, in in terms of working together. I I look at the waste of the recreation of what what is being done and and the layers of of paperwork and bureaucracy uh, in both public and private um, sectors, and it just, is unbelievable. I did a a talk the other day to a a think tank here in um in St. Paul, Minneapolis area, um and they were talking about respite care. And you know, I said we really have to think outside of the box. You know, we have to think about utilizing buildings 24/7 instead of, you know, or maybe sharing space, you know. There we don't do much for respite at night, and so these buildings you know, are sitting there wasted, and they're like the Hebrew um, house in, I think it's New York, you know, has an evening um, day center. And it's awesome. It is really awesome. I've gone through this this same exact discussion with people. mm -hmm. Yeah, there's people, there's spouses that can't get sleep at night because their their loved one has uh, sundowners and they're up all night. There are adult children that work afternoon shift or midnight shift and have their parents living with them. They need respite 24-7. And that program they have out in New York is awesome. Yeah, I'm having them on the radio here um, next month, and I'm I'm very excited because I've I've used their video a lot in training, and people are just, you know, amazed at what they're doing, and it just makes sense. And they're shocked that more people haven't picked it up. You know, but it's outside the box. Um, it's extremely effective. Um, talk about cost effective, you know, to be able to utilize that space. And it's so meeting a need for people. Um, the other thing that, you know, we talked about was, um, you know, people think of respite of having to be this physical space. And, I, you know, I 
challenge people with that. I, I definitely think there's a need for that, but I think we also have to look at who needs the respite, not just the person maybe with the illness um, or needing the care, but also the caregiver. And social media, there's a lot of platforms which can offer respite um, that are kind of poo-pooed, and, but they can give people that solace or make that connection um, to energize them. Um, to, to move on, because that's really what respite's about, is getting re-energized, having that break, you know. Yeah, and we wow. need to do a better job supporting family caregivers in, in, the, in the United States, too. I think we don't do enough for the families that are, are, you know, giving everything they have to care for a loved one. Yeah. What Do you have some ideas along that line? Uh, as far as families, I, you know, I have a vision in my book for senior living and care that would reduce the need for family caregivers that, you know, um, is an intergenerational cooperative community. And I go into detail in the book about it, but that's one idea, you know, that, that can help solve a lot of the current problems, reduce the need for families to give up their entire lives to care for a loved one, um, because sometimes it's nice to just be the family member. Mm-hmm. And not just always be the care provider. Uh, so yeah, I think there's there's issues with that, and I agree the same with you. You know, there needs to be respite twenty four seven. There needs to be some funding for for family caregivers. There's no real programs that help them financially uh, obtain care. No, no, and there and what is out there is tightening up. You know, with all the budget cuts and. Um, is getting real spooky. The other thing is I think there's so much focus on cures for things. And I think cures are fine, but in the meantime, we're ignoring um, massive numbers in need today. You know? I agree. Um, and and I, I, it would be interesting if the U.S. would ever look at us um, like they look at an outside country and what their thoughts would really be if they looked at our numbers and our statistics of, you know, the homeless and the ill and the aging, um, you know, how how would they react? Mm-hmm. I, I think that would be a really interesting thing because I think we think we're doing so much better. Um, but, you know, we, we've got a lot of issues here on our home ground, um, you know, that need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed in, in a different fashion because, you know, I think I don't think there's anyone that'll say the system is working. Um, you know, the way that it that it needs to. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I think we're missing the boat. That you know, the the powers that be that are up there in the Medicare offices and Medicaid and insurance companies and you know, aging programs, they're missing the boat by not talking to people that are in the trenches of care. You know, there's. There's thousands of nurses out there every day taking care of people in their homes and assisted livings and nursing homes and hospitals, and they're seeing the problems up close and personal, you know, nurses, social workers, um, the people that are actually doing the hands-on care. And um, I think we need to start getting the, the powers that be need to start talking to these people because they're mm-hmm. the ones that see the problems day to day. They're the ones that are helping families come up with solutions and they have ideas, and we're missing the boat. Yeah, it's that direct line. It's kind of like uh, that that open door policy that you know most companies say that they have, 
um, you know, allowing the the direct line staff to come in and give ideas, um, but it, it has to be more than just listened to. You know, it has to really be heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and taken yeah, seriously. Yeah, you're right. But I but I think part of the problem too is that we don't create an environment that says, um, you know, when I used to supervise staff in healthcare, um, one of my rules was, you know, I've got this open door policy. Um, but this this is this also goes hand in hand. You can't come in here and just bitch. Right. I want to know what are your ideas to resolve this, and then let's figure out how to fix it. Yeah. You know, because if you're just going to come in here and complain, that's not going to that's not going to get us where we need to go. And if you're the one seeing this and spotting this, then you're probably going to be the one that's going to be able to figure out how to resolve it because you know what all the resources and dynamics are that are that are happening yeah. you know in that particular situation um but it's giving the people the credit that they could even come up with those ideas you know and and having faith in them because that's not something that that everybody knows how to do or has faith that they can do so i think part of it is creating that culture and that environment that says hey I want to hear your ideas, and you know, I don't, I don't think that we have this perfect. I don't think perfect exists. You know, um, I think perfect gets us in problems um, because we 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 think we have it figured out, and then we stop looking at how to get better. And um, and I think the I think the U.S. and not just the U.S. but I think a lot of countries have struggled with that thinking. Yeah, we got this down. And then we've lost all of the changes that have been spinning around that have been maybe subtle. And nowadays, you know, it's it's way past subtlety. We're we're at the verge of crisis, and we're trying to figure out how we got there. And yeah. we've ha- we've had those blinders on. And you know. I, you know, I think about the elder boom crisis coming as, you know, how New Orleans and Hurricane Trina. Uh, Hurricane Katrina happened, you know. They talked about it and talked about it and talked about it for years, that those levees would not hold a major hurricane. Mm -hmm. But they didn't strengthen them. They didn't come up with a better system. They just kept talking about it. And the worst nightmare happened. It happened exactly Mm -hmm. the way they knew it would one day, but they didn't do anything to prevent it. And we're looking at an elder boom crisis that is going to devastate this country. And unless we do something and quit talking about it, it's going to happen. It's not mm-hmm. a matter of if, it's just when. When is it going to get so bad that, you know, everything is falling apart? I mean, mm-hmm. right now businesses are losing billions of dollars a year uh, because of family caregivers that are employed. And this is where we fail as a country to support family caregivers. You know, if they yeah. had somebody that could come to the house while they are at work or they had a respite place that they could put their loved one so they're not getting phone calls all day long, so they're not having to run home for a crisis, so somebody can handle doctor appointments and things like that. You know, it's it's just all intertwined. And, you know, I guess young people don't realize that this involves them as well. It's not just the people that are hitting their senior years. Well, and I think part of that is our own fault because we try to protect our kids. Um, of this, I know with dementia in particular, um, a lot of families don't share the nitty gritty, 
And I hear this from kids all the time. You know, I want to know. I want to help. Um, but but they won't let me in, you know, because I'm a kid. And and they see how, how dementia is affecting their family. And they know that there are certain things that they could help with, but we have to... We have to be honest, and we have to start talking about these things. And and I'm talking, you know, um, children at all ages, um, because I mean, you think of, you know, the magic that little kids bring to older adults. Many times, is just uh, something that you and I can't bring to the table. Right. <laughs> I know, because I, I take we take our grandkids out visiting um, nursing homes and assisted livings, and they pass out candy. And they're, mm-hmm. um, we've done it with three of them. They're five. No, they're now five, four, and two. Mm-hmm. And the, they just light up seniors' faces, and they love it. They love it as much as the seniors do. My grandson told my uh, my son, he said, I love going there because I get lots of hugs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's, something that I could bring there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different level, but it takes us all but we you know we have to be able to appreciate the value that everyone brings to the table and i think sometimes that is overlooked when we look at something being so serious you know what can a child bring well a child can bring an awful lot um so can a teenager um to a mode um rose uh, one of our listeners is just saying people need to help people and that's so true um and we've we've lost that piece um, one of the things I do when I speak is I ask people what the what is it the flu what does dementia the flu epidemic the fiscal um, uh, crisis uh, fiscal cliff and then the mass shootings you know what 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 do those things have in common and people look at me like I'm nuts like well there's nothing in common but to me it's our care culture they all come down to how we care for one another and um, you know, and it's so important. And again, the the fiscal cliff and the flu epidemic. You know, maybe by washing hands and the mass shootings, how we're treating someone. Um, you know, with the disease or with aging, we can't necessarily control that, but we sure can care for people in those situations differently and be much more um, in tuned uh, to the messages that we're giving one another and uh you know our delivery systems i think really really need to be assessed and um it's it's sad um what do you think is kind of the primary cause of of poor care lack of empathy i think it, you know care you can teach people skills um but you can't really you can't teach empathy but you can bring people to a place of empathy and i think we're not doing that um, mm-hmm. You know, when when you go to work in a facility, a nursing home, you're going to get some quick training with basic skills, maybe some customer service training, but you they never teach how to get to know the people you're caring for. Mm-hmm. And unless you know who you're caring for, you know something about their background, you know who they are, you know, or even understand that there is a whole history and a whole life behind this person. Care is not going to improve. You have to get yeah. engaged. It has to be real for you, not just a body in a bed. Mm-hmm. You know, if this is your grandmother, you know, what do you want people to know about her? I put yeah. a, I put a uh, 
kind of a biography um, up in the nursing home where my grandma lived, saying these are the things that, this is what my grandma's about. This are the things that her family loves her for, mm-hmm. and this is who she is. So please treat her kindly. Please help her look nice. You know, she's a real person here, and we love her dearly. I mean, my grandma has mm-hmm. five, had five kids, 26 grandchildren, and I don't even know how many great-grandchildren. But, you know, she was dearly loved. And I think it helped the the people that took care of her to know more about her, know more about her history and what kind of person she's been. So I think it's mm-hmm. important that we do that. And if you yeah. don't know something about the person, still understand you don't know. You don't know mm-hmm. what they've been through. You don't know what they've accomplished. You don't know what, you know, they've they've served. They've served the country in some way or you know, a family or taking care of sick kids or you don't know what people have done in their life. So realize mm-hmm. that there's more and they deserve to be treated well. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I totally agree with you. I do what I call is emotional-based training um, to get to just what you're talking about because we can hear all the statistics that we want to about something, but until we feel the need to change, until we humanize it, um, and and own it, you know, it's just rote. It's just a task. And, you know, care is not about this big, long checklist that we all carry around. Right. But, that, but, but that's what we think it is. That's just, that's just kind of a, you know, that for most is the end goal is to complete that task. Um, but what is more important and I think um, allows people to live healthier lives and more productive lives is how we engage them um, when we're doing those tasks. And really, my life has been so enhanced by spending time with the elderly. You know, mm-hmm. if, if people really just took the time to spend time with them and talk to them and hear about their lives, and you can see, you can almost see the joy that they've had in their past, like they're reliving their past when they talk about things that have gone on and, you know, that they enjoyed doing when they were younger or something that went on in their family. You know, it's, they've got a lot to offer. Why are we not listening? Yeah, well, and the, yeah, the pride really comes out. Uh, one of our guests is saying, I think that the aides are overworked and, and get paid way too little. And and I think that that is something that needs to adjust. Those positions that is true. Need, need to be valued more. I mean, they are they are the crux. They're the front line. And it's, it's really quite sad um, when you see some of these big bonus packages that are going out. Uh, to people, and um, and then you know, or companies um, aren't paying, aren't doing full time. They're under the the radar, you know, to get rid of the healthcare costs, um, so that they don't have to assume those. But everything is a trickle down effect, um, you know, with how with how it works and how how people are able to do their job, you know, is is the end result. And you know, I. I wish I had the magic wand to just, you know, fix it all and print a bunch of money and start fresh with a plan. But, but that's yeah. not going to Well, you know, just my, my own personal experience, I was healthy my whole life and then I got sick. And mm-hmm. with health insurance, I spent $88,000 in five years trying to get diagnosed. Mm-hmm. You know, that's crazy. I mean, our system is, is just not right. It's not, 
it's not, I couldn't go to the hospital where I ended up getting diagnosed 10 minutes from my house because my insurance company said it's not within our our plan. Mm-hmm. So they spent, you know, all this money in five years sending me to places that, that couldn't diagnose me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've I seen both sides. I have a different perspective, you know, as a patient and a nurse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was going to ask if you had personal experiences caring for a loved one, but even yourself going through the process of how inefficient, you know, we've become. And uh, even just now, it's like the doctors, you know, don't seem to process it. They plug it into the computer and the computer tells them, you know, what the equation is, you know, what the algorithm is, and, you know, <laughs> and it's like, you know, sometimes I kind of wonder, why am I talking to a doctor? Why, when's the day going to come when I just talk into the computer and the computer diagnoses me? Yeah. Because there, there's such a disconnect, um, you know, with so many of these things. And, and sometimes you can even see it on the doctor's face. They want to do something else, but, you know, the insurance companies have restricted them in right. terms of what the process needs to be. Um, I know when my dad had uh, well, he, he had blood clots, and they, I mean, he almost died because they didn't find him because he didn't have the standard signs of a blood clot. And for whatever reason, I knew, I mean, I just kind of had this dream, and I said, I know what it is. And, of course, they looked at me like I was nuts, but um, it was, what, three or four days later when they finally did this inexpensive test um to to check and they're like oh my gosh we can't believe this didn't kill him because he was throwing blood clots from one lung to the other and they said um and they were thinking it was heart problems and then they went in to do a biopsy because they thought there was a bunch of tumors and the surgeon came out and said well I could have told you these weren't tumors he was just here a week ago and was clean there's no way they could you know they could um create themselves in that short a time frame. But nobody's talking to one another. It's just like, okay, this is what I'm yeah, supposed to do. You have to be such an advocate in healthcare these days. You really do. And, you know, the other thing that's, I think, truly bothersome is that, you know, we know that 70 million baby boomers are aging. Geriatric training is not required in medical school, and it's not required in nursing. My geriatric training in nursing school is three weeks long, in medical school, pediatrics is required, but geriatrics isn't. Now, most physicians will never treat children, mm-hmm. but almost all will treat a senior at some point in their career, if not on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And they're still not demanding um, that geriatrics is is uh, part of the medical school. Why do you think that is? I There's... There's an attitude in the healthcare system about being a geriatric nurse or a geriatric physician, um, and this has gone on through my whole nursing career. That I've seen that they think um, the the career as a whole, nurses as a whole, see nurses that work in long-term care as not being able to cut it in the hospital, or not being able to cut it in trauma, or not being able to cut it, you know, um, um, doing something more more difficult as they see it. Um, and, I, you know, the people that are in geriatrics generally truly love it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's, of course, once more of nurses' aides that just want to get a job. But um, 
You know, I, I just think there's such a disrespect for people that want to be in geriatrics. Wow. That's sad. That's really, it is sad. That's really sad. But there is. There's so much prejudice that we have. I mean, even when I look at... Um, you know, assisted livings um, or market rate apartments um, amongst uh, amongst themselves, they don't want to be around those old people. You know, if, if somebody's got a walker, a wheelchair, or a cane, I mean, we hear the people living there uh, being prejudiced against others that have declined or, or need um, some type of assistance. I mean, that's a very, very common. That's and why I so, think so, in so many ways the vision I have for elder care is just is wonderful because the people that um, need care have already given care. They've already provided by volunteering in the community. They've already provided some type of assistance to people that need need care. Mm-hmm. So when it's time for them to receive care, they're more open to it and more welcoming to it because they know what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. Very true. And like you said, people caring for people, it's about how we care for each other. Yeah, it really is. And we also have to teach ourselves how to care for ourselves because we we don't do that well either. We just, um, we don't talk about these things. Um, and, you know, to me, uh, we could teach so much in school, you know, maybe even get rid of some of the bullying and and things that are happening if we really had an honest conversation of overall impact. Um, that we have on one another, um, just through simple, simple things. I've gone into um, high schools and junior high and done some some age sensitivity work with the kids, and, which is real fun. And we play all these games, and and it's very interactive for two hours. But you know, part of that process we talk about even um, is have you ever been discriminated against? And most of them will say no, and I say you're lying. Everybody in this room has been discriminated against. I, and those of you that haven't, I want you to argue your point with me. You know, you're you're too tall, you're too short, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you know, you don't have the right jeans or the right tennis shoes. or I mean, the list goes on and on and on um, because we put everybody in these little little categories. And, and it's amazing how through those exercises I can actually tell who's been bullied and who is, who has been the bully in different episodes, and they haven't realized their impact on one another. And it's just, and I think that's part of what we need um, as a country is to really start talking about um, and educating people on how are we um, affecting others, you know, through our decisions and our mannerisms and, um, you know, what's, what's efficient and what's not and, you know, really taking to heart that, you know, treat others how you want to be treated. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think it would be a great requirement to have junior high and high school kids have to volunteer and work in a nursing home. Yeah. You know, I think they would be enlightened. They wouldn't be so fearful. I think there's some fear um, with up, being up close and personal with being old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, it could benefit our society as a whole if they would start requiring kids to do that. Yeah. Well, there would be a much better understanding, um, and maybe they wouldn't be in as much denial as our age is. And, <laughs> yeah. Know? 
I mean, even when my folks were aging, I remember saying, um, thinking old was always 10 years older than my folks because that was safe, that I was never going to have to deal with issues. You know, well, that was oh, fine until wow. it didn't work one day. And, I mean, I was in the industry. I dealt with it constantly. Um, and and I used to joke about it because they were healthy. And they seemed, you know, 10 years younger than, than a lot of people their age. Um, but talk about denial. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it hits. And you can help. Um, and I think this happens to a lot of professionals, not necessarily just myself, but you can help everybody and their brother, and then all of a sudden you're in the trench. And, boy, it looks a little different. You yeah, know? it does. <laughs> and, you know, most of us will be in the trenches of care at some point with somebody, whether it's ourselves, it's a, a parent, it's a spouse, it's a uncle or a cousin or a friend. You know, we're going to have to deal with it at some point if we haven't already. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, this is the other thing I'm thinking is, when you, I have this talk about this some in my book, but you know, if you want to open a business, wouldn't you want to be uh, spend time talking to somebody that already had a successful business like you're going to have, so mm-hmm. you could cut corners, so you could, you know, not make the same mistakes, so you could be more successful. Why don't we seek the wisdom of our our elders? They ran this country before we did. They went through the yeah. Great Depression. They've done all these things, you know suffered hardships that most of us will never know. Yep. And we don't go to them and say, well, how can we do this better? What are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. so much wisdom in the senior population, so much wisdom. Yeah, that's a very that's a very good point. That would be a really uh, interesting town hall meeting to, to be able to draw on, on the elderly and their wisdom um, mm-hmm. to to come up with some ideas because they they do. I mean, they've lived through so much. Uh, they they get what's really important and, and what isn't so much. And I think that that is something that really changes with age. Um, I, I know it has for me. I, I look at the world very differently than I used to. Uh, I, same of, here. I do too. In terms of priorities and uh, very, very different. It kind of amazes me how different Yeah, and, you know, I think that's one of the cool things of aging is that, you know, the wisdom that you gain and the the changes that you have in your own life because of what you've seen and been through. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a new awakening almost. Yeah. Yeah, and new, which which with that brings so many opportunities um, to be able to make changes and to, you know, and sometimes it's even just being able to focus um, you know, prioritize things different. You know, they might all still be in the bag, but you're you're looking for different things and prioritizing the importance of different things um, within those items. Um, I mean, just, you know, that in itself can be huge. Yeah, it is huge. And, you know, I think about when I've, I've talked with people in their 90s, you know, they still have dreams inside of them too. You know, mm-hmm. we never think about seniors dreaming, but there's they still have dreams. There's still things yep. that they want to do or they want to see or, you know, spend time, you know, with family doing or whatever. Um, but we we don't understand that because we don't we don't spend the time. Yeah. 
Well, I definitely want to um, have you talk a little bit about your book and um, different aspects of your book because I can't believe we're down to like five minutes already in the hour. Um, so do you want to um, point out any certain things um, about your book that, that might be intriguing to our listeners? Well, I think, you know, it's it's a the book started off just to make people realize that there's something behind the old face. You know, the stories, the... I wanted to change the perspective of how we see the elderly. And through the process with my publisher, it became a, um, an expanded book, should I say. He asked me what I thought my vision was for senior living and care, what I would think would be a, a great way for seniors to live, and that's how the vision came about and ended up in the book. But um, I interviewed several seniors for the book and featured them, their facial pictures and their stories, and it's real interesting because I didn't specifically pick anyone to interview. I just wanted to interview any seniors that were willing to be interviewed and have their story and and photo in the book. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just down the street, I mean, really, it's in my neighborhood. Uh, one of the guys in the book worked on the original Wright Brothers papers and oh, really? ended up writing a biography uh-huh. on the Wright Brothers and... Another gentleman that's in the book is um, indirectly responsible for Earth Day because mm-hmm. he was the one that announced that the Great Lakes were polluted. And wow. you just don't know who is in the the nursing home or the assisted living down the street. These people have amazing stories. Yeah. So and I think really... that's, that's a real interesting part of the book. I mean, I, I love uh, talking with people about their hopes and dreams and um, you know, the things that they'd been through, and so that's shared in the book, and I, I find that very interesting myself. And then, of course, you know, we we need to really look, a hard look at our system because it's not working, and we have to act to create a better one. Mm-hmm. And we have yeah. to do that together. You know, not one person can do it, and one one idea is not going to work for all people. But no. we have to start acting now because we're headed for a crisis like no other. Yep, I I totally agree. Now, what's the best way for people to um, to contact you if they would want you to come and speak to a group or to be able to get to the uh, get to your book? Um, well, they can to come to elderboom.org. Mm-hmm. There's a contact form on there, or they can email me at angel at behindtheoldface.com. Okay, and angel is A N G I L. Right. Okay, behind behind the old face is that what it was? Yeah, angel at behindtheoldface.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, I thank you so much for your time today, and I can't believe how fast this has gone. Blue, it was great chatting with you. Nice to hear the things that you're working on. Yeah, it's always it's always fun and exciting. You know, it's it's not boring, and and uh, you know, I just I love being able to connect people to to different resources, and I think your book is absolutely fabulous, as well as your others um, and your articles. You're doing great work out there, so thank you so well, much thank for you, all Lori. you do. Well, great. Well, you have, you have a, a great... Wonderf- mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and have a have a wonderful Easter holiday if you celebrate that. And... I do, and we will, and I thank you for that. And you have a great okay. Easter, too. Okay, bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm going to go ahead and um, just remind people, too, today that we are also going to be doing a Dementia Chats webinar. That will be at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and that would be noon Pacific Time. 
and you'll be able to, uh, you can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and um, find information on that. I'll be posting that on the blog and on Facebook here in a little little bit as well. And today we'll be interviewing um, Dina, Steve, and Michael about life with dementia. Upcoming shows that we have, um, on Friday I'm going to be talking with Us Against Alzheimer's and also um, Baka Saba, who has put together a really cool new video, which will be um, debuting tomorrow. Um, but that that show is at 10 o'clock uh, Central Time on the 29th. We'll also be covering April 5th transgender needs when it comes to dementia. And then on the 11th, I'm going to have author of Dare to Care, which is a real interesting book, and Dr. Donald Moss on, and he has... Um, is doing some really exciting new research. So I hope that you can be with us in the future. In the meantime, have a great holiday, and thank you so much for all you're doing. Again, if you want to push that like button or tweet about us, we'd appreciate it. And if you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association, check out Alzheimer's Disease International. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.